0: Episode 32, with chef and artist Omar Tate. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with celebrated community activist, restaurateur, and poet, Omar Tate. Hailing from West Philadelphia, Omar's work reminds us of our vulnerabilities when we live in the worlds of whiteness, power, and privilege. Honeysuckle, his fine-dining pop-up experience turned community center and cafe, uses food as an antidote to these worlds and a portal into Black and Afrocentric ideology, resiliency, and design. As a young man growing up in Philly, Omar started cooking out of necessity. He was selling drugs and needed a job. At age 21, he had no idea that his penchant for plate aesthetics would lead him to New York and cooking in some of America's finest restaurants. Tired of not seeing himself, his stories, or his experiences represented in the food he was creating, he launched Honeysuckle in 2017. Honeysuckle's immersive sensory pop-up dining experience quickly gained national recognition. In 2020, Tate was named Esquire's Chef of the Year and found himself on Time Magazine's 2021 Next 100 list. Honeysuckle was also noted as one of the 15 most anticipated restaurants of 2021 by Food & Wine Magazine. However, as this pandemic continues to remind us, we're all vulnerable to the fragility of a labor system built on low wages, long hours, and laurels upon which no black man can rest. Unable to pay rent, Tate returned to live with his mother in Philadelphia and launched a GoFundMe page for his honeysuckle pop up and forthcoming projects. Today's conversation is a real one. Omar and I balance the reality of racism in the kitchen with the joys of new babies named Jupiter. Known for truth-telling, Omar shares the lessons he's learned about fatherhood, why he serves every guest his iteration of Red Kool-Aid, and how he distinguishes between the lies Black people are taught about themselves from the truths of our own stories. Like I said, Omar is from Philly, so the truth bombs hit over and over. Let us know what spoke to you over on Twitter and Instagram, at Black Imagination. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. This community is so important to us. So, here we go. Next up, Omar T. Brother Omar Tate, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, It is such a pleasure to have you here. I am so excited for this conversation. Um, I'm excited for people to hear what you've been up to, where you're going, uh, what you've been through, and I think it's going to be super, super inspirational. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today.
1: Thank you, man. I'm really, really excited.
0: Uh, OK, um, so so let's get started with like the origins, like who is Omar Tate, Chef Omar Tate? <laughs>
1: um, Well, I'm glad you called me Chef Omar Tate because I get to challenge that. Like <laughs> I, I I allow people to call me chef because it's easier for them to understand what I do. Um, but I really look at myself as an artist. I, um, you know, I grew up. I'm the oldest of four boys. Uh, child of a single mother uh, grew up in Philadelphia currently live in West Philly Um, and you know I mean I used to do really well in school (laughs) Um, didn't do super well in school in my later years Uh, I I like to tell people that I have an eighth grade education because when I went to middle school I was like bus to a school outside of my neighborhood Um, came back to the neighborhood where I was being raised in and they were offering the same curriculum that my middle school was offering. So my middle school was like, was was a white school. And then in ninth, ninth grade, I entered a class, um, a vocational school where one of our first tests, I was the only person that could read a ruler in my class. Um, Yeah. I got an A plus and then everyone else failed. Everyone else in my class literally failed. (laughs) Um, So like, that's the, that's the equivalent of education. So I like to tell people that I have, the equivalent of what the school system offered me was an eighth grade education. So I I had to teach myself a lot. And um, I started cooking at the age of 21 um, because I needed a job. And uh, I was also selling drugs at the time. And um, it was more of a survival thing. I I didn't have like a love or lure for the kitchen. Um, I knew how to cook because my mom taught me Uh, to cook because she was working and I needed to my brother and I learned how to cook uh, so that we could either start dinner or finish dinner for our family Um, and so I hated it it felt like a chore um, and it was just more of a means of survival but the more I look back on my life I, I was very into how my food looked and like how it tasted and like you know but just I got into it because I think I just have this natural gravitation towards aesthetics yeah, I've always drawn, I've always painted, I've always written poetry, I've always journaled. Um, and all those things really spoke to me uh, when I became a chef at 21, entering um, at that point, it was a golf club that was like 30 miles outside of Philadelphia um, that I was traveling to two and a half hours every day um, to get to because I felt like this was like how I was going to like save my life, you know, like this is how I was going to define my, my life path. So um, I love the fact that, you know, there were recipes so you had to read I love the fact that um, I'm very competitive and I played high school sports I played basketball and boxing and all this stuff. So like line cooking itself was kind of like a sport where like you're in competition with the cooks next to you to like put things out to the dining room, the fastest and, and the most efficient. Um, so it felt like that to me, um, but then also like I mean who doesn't love to eat. But what food was, was kind of like an entry point uh, for me to the rest of the world. I never had the money to travel. Um, I actually still don't even have a passport. I'm getting, I'm in the process of getting one right now. So I've never even been out of the country. Um, and for a long time, my life was like a 12 block radius. And so food gave me access to the world in the same way I felt like books did, you know? So um, at 21, it just like, I mean, I was, I became a cook in a golf club where everything was different. You know, it's a country club. Everyone that I worked with was white after spending 21 years of my life where almost everyone I encountered was black um and learning about simple foods that I'd never eaten like leeks I'd never heard of a leek before you know I'd never heard of fennel before and so everything was brand new um all the language was different all of the culture was different so I got really excited about that and you know here I am um, 11 years later Uh, that's amazing and thank you for
0: challenging me on that um, that description of chef you know um, me personally it's something that I'm always fighting against as well just because uh, a lot of people label me as a photographer but I see myself in this broader sense as well but how where where did the writing come in? Like where and when did the drawing come in, like your actual art practice?
1: When did that evolve? When was that genesis? Um, well, I mean, one of the very first things that I can remember doing at the age of like three is, is drawing an airplane. My mom um, immediately uh, latched onto the fact that I just liked to, to draw. And I mean, I, I, I guess at the time she thought I was pretty decent. And so she nurtured that and she taught me how to like draw an airplane. I guess I was really interested in that. Um, so I've always sketched, uh, but I've always been a big thinker. You know, I, I remember walking down the street and asking my mom, like, you know, why is the sun up there? Like just questions, you know, <laughs> questions like that or <laughs> breaking down in tears when I was like five on the stairs because I, kn- I learned that we were going to die one day. You know, so like I've always just been like a big thinker and just like a collector of of, you know, the, the universe, like in my mind. Um, and so I kind of approach everything like that and at the onset of me being a chef and becoming a cook like within months I knew that I wanted to own my own restaurant and I knew that it was not going to be something I wanted it to be unusual Like, again at the onset I I realized how superficial it was too I was at a golf club you know I was at a country club where like yeah you know I left the hood to come here um, and I was I was the anomaly in this space but everything about that world was like outlier to me you know like how is this grass so perfect? What is this irrigation system that is like, that only grows grass so that white people can stand there and throw balls in the hole? Like, like, none of it made sense to me, you know? And then how come, because they pay this amount of money, they get to afford like four different food concepts at their disposal and throw away whatever they want. So it was just like, it was just all superficial um, from the beginning to me. And every time I, I was thinking about where I was gonna go, it was about how um, I, I could do something more meaningful. Um, and that's not to take away from, you know, the members experience, you know, uh, it's it's not their fault that we live in America, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I'm glad it was meaningful to them, but it wasn't meaningful to me. Um, and ultimately over the course of my career, I, I've worked several different positions and stations, made my way up to manager, and all things are equal until you are in a position to make decisions, and it wasn't until I became a kitchen manager when I actually experienced um, the idea of marginalization in my career path, you know, like, when I was a line cook, I I could move anywhere, I could do anything, I could stodge anywhere, start, like, you know, train anywhere, um, (laughs) drink with anyone, do anything, like, Idea with anyone about anything because none of our ideas were going anywhere, <laughs> you know, because we were all just line cooks, no matter what we looked like. But when you become a decision maker, that's when you know the the field is different, the money pot looks different, the access looks different, the network looks different. So um, I think you know across the board and black experiences throughout across industries. Um, you find yourself surrounded by less and less uh, people who look like you, but also less and less people who are, are um, as like-minded as you are, because it's not always just like a color issue. you know. It's, it's really a survival issue. It's really a, a crabs in a barrel issue. There aren't that many positions out there where you can make decisions and be paid well. Um, so uh, people use racism to maintain that structure. And oftentimes, whether people know it or not, they're doing things that are violently or aggressively racist, whether they can really understand um, on a conscious level that that's what they're doing. So when people ask me how I experienced racism in my career, no one was ever actually racist towards me, Omar Tate. People were actively racist in a racist system that targets people like me. You know. So um, that being said, there was like a lot of like passive aggressive things, uh, there was an email exchange at one point where I was like going for a position as an, as an executive chef where I, you know, I told them, well, I, I did a full tasting menu, gave them the, the, the descriptions and inspirations around everything. Um, it was an Italian restaurant. Um, I largely worked in Italian Mediterranean. I've worked at a, a Michelin star Italian restaurant called a voce um, And this was after that. Um, I was running a place pretty much um, in the neighborhood. This was in Brooklyn, by the way, in, in Gowanus. I was running another restaurant in the neighborhood around the corner from where this restaurant was opening that everyone knew and loved and everyone knew I was like, you know, uh, I was the executive sous chef there. And um, and so like, you know, I'm saying that to say that my pedigree was strong, you know? And the email they said was, we love everything. Um, the food was delicious, the concepts were great, but it felt a little disingenuous and we're not sure if you're the guy who should be representing our restaurant. And, uh, you know, that, that was like one of the most um, defining instances where I knew that, okay, it's because I'm a black person making Italian food, you know? Um, and this was probably about 2017, 2016 actually, it was 2016. Um, and over the course of the next year and a half, uh, there were more instances like that. Um, and ultimately I just decided to step away from being a, a, a chef. And I decided that I was going to be an artist um, after learning so much about our history um, in a way that I hadn't learned it before when I stepped away I started reading more books and del- delving into soul food and southern food. Um, and there was there are three books that I call like the Holy Trinity of my like framing of, of honeysuckle, um, which is the, the concept that I now run. But um, <clears throat> A Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis, which is her nostalgic overview of her upbringing in Freetown, Virginia, um, before she left for New York City and became a chef is one. Um, The other book is called High on the Hog by Dr. Jessica B. Harris, which is a detailed outline of um, how African foodways or African-American foodways became what they are today, tracing it back to West Africa um, all the way up until contemporary America, And then the last book, which is like the uh, abstract one, is a a writer, poet, um, Kevin Young, wrote a book called The Grey Album. um, And it's called The Grey Album on the Blackness of Blackness. And it's a critical theory on Black literature um, as far back as like Phyllis Wheatley and as contemporary as Jay-Z. And so it really, it it gives critical, Thoughts around Black narratives, the, the linguistics of Blackness, and how they're applied to our creativity. Um, and those three books really helped me create the language around honeysuckle. And honeysuckle is the concept that I delivered after recognizing that there was no space in place for me, a Black American, a child of the Great Migration, one who was not born in the South, one who has no memory of the South, um, one who. Uh, taste the South, but didn't, don't understand what that soil feels like. Um, one who knows that we are uh, of African descent, but doesn't know Africa, you know, like that, that story hasn't been told on a plate, you know? Uh, so that was, um, that's where the poetry and the artistry came into play with my food, because I knew if I was just started designing food in a way um, that wasn't easily, Fit into the frame of what soul food was or southern food was, people would challenge me and ask me questions. So it was because I didn't want to answer any fucking questions that I started writing poetry for. <laughs> <laughs> it was very selfish.
0: Oh, man. First of all, thank you so much for that list of books. And we'll put that um, for you all in the show notes so that you all can follow up um, for yourselves. So, it's interesting, even in the way that you speak, there is this command and energy behind your words and the words that you use. And I, we had Black Thought on the podcast, uh, maybe like last year, and I asked him the same thing. And I have to ask you, like, what is it about Philly? Like, there is something about <laughs> Philly I just... I'm from St. Louis, so I can't really speak to it. But there is an energy that yeah. produces a certain and specific type of black creativity and phenomenology that I find intriguing. Like, wh- what is it about Philly? Like, set, us, set the stage for us, like, your upbringing in Philly and what Philly actually is gave to you you mentioned earlier a little bit about you know being a child of the great migration but never knowing anything about the south but what was that repository of you know black migratory culture in philly that you grew up in? um
1: well i think there's something very special about philly this maybe every city can do this but philly doesn't does it exceptionally well where it tells you black people have always been here while simultaneously simultaneously telling you that Black people don't matter at all, you know, um, b- because of the conditions that we live in. So there's a very strong sense of pride of Blackness within the, the culture of Philadelphia in general because of people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Absalom Jones and, you know, uh, Quakers embracing um, um, abolition very early on. Uh, actually, Philadelphia was, the, I think, the first city to abolish slavery after the great enlightenment that was a movement started by the Quakers and it happened twice. And you know, so like the notion of combating um, inequity um, and, and preserving and defending uh, manhood, personhood and humanity is a very Philadelphian idea. Um, and, it, and it happened in the face of uh, colonialism in the face of uh, the Antebellum South Um, in the face of the civil war and so there's there's just this strange duality of sight and unseenness in philly um, where black folks are just were shoved in the corners Um, philadelphia is a very blue collar city so it's the racism that exists in philadelphia i would say is very very real um, because it's not like uh, a haves versus have nots, it's like all of us got like a little bit and some of us really ain't got shit. <laughs> um, and so uh, the banding together of collective identity is easy for uh, white folks or, or, and those who are not Black. And so it's easy to separate yourself from Blackness without having to use sec- socioeconomics um, to, to separate one another. And Black folks uh, band together through the identity of resiliency. In Philadelphia, where we hold true to our neighborhoods, you know, Um, where like gentrification is happening now, but it's happening at a at a pace that is far more slow than New York City, um, or far more slow than Washington D.C. Probably on pace with Baltimore, who I feel like is like Philadelphia's twin, you know. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's then there's also um, with that that truth of placement of black folks, um, both inside and outside of black narratives is that the people who I just mentioned, like W.E.B. Du Bois, are extremely creative, you know? Um, yes, he was an academic. Yes, he, you know, is controversial in his thinking with, you know, talented 10th stuff. But beyond all that, uh, he was an artist, you know? He was an artist too. You know? Then we can go into, obviously, music, the sound of Philadelphia, you know, Cam- Gamble and Huff, you know? Um, we can go, to John Coltrane. We can look at Philly Joe Jones, the drummer. We can look at the jazz scene and the club scene that was happening on um, Columbia Avenue became before it became Cecil B. Moore Avenue, which was named um, after a, a black politician who was advocating for black rights in the 60s. So like Philadelphia really loves to hate its black people <laughs> um, for real. And I think that there's this weird, there's this strange energy, this like escapist energy. Like all of us are Kunta here. We just want to get the fuck out and let people know that we're here. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Okay. And you mentioned
0: some really like incredible names, like W.E.B. Du Bois, Absalom Jones, who, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the founders of the AME Church, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, so these these names, these histories, did this come in that period of discovery when you went back and decided to like really start reading, really start digging into history like when you took that break from uh from the kitchen or was this um interest in in history and this really kind of deep dive into it something that you've been doing you know since the beginning since your school days
1: um it's both yes and no it was, it was- that, that period was um, me learning a bunch of things that I didn't know, but also remembering things that I, I just pushed aside so that I could be something else. You know, um, my uncle, my uncle Harold um, is, cause I don't think you can ever say you were a black Panther. Um, my grandfather, James Jameson was also a black Panther, but he died at the age of 43. Um, all, the, all the men, um, this is my mother's side, by the way, that I'm speaking of, all the men uh, in my family were community, were active in community engagement and upliftment of the Black community in South Philadelphia, where my family ended up um, after the Great Migration. Um, My great-grandfather and my great um, Aunt Julie were both pianists um, in the church and were like, Known in the church, like church circuit in the city, as like the best organist and pianist, some of the best organist and pianist in the city. Um, my my grandfather was an artist; he painted murals. Uh, my uncle uh, Bill is still running a um, grassroots po- political radio show in Harrisburg, where he talks about stuff for hours and hours and hours and hours. <laughs> um, uh, my, my uncle Butch and my my aunt Dolores own a church in North Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting question with an interesting answer in that um, knowing our truth, uh, our collective Black truth has always been a thing in my family, but not only has it been a thing to learn, but a thing to do, like to learn history and be history is a thing in our family, on my mom's side. So um, I, I just, I feel like I was born into this space to be the person that I am. Um, and I was able to tap back into that before I lost myself completely by taking that break you know and building on that
0: um you you mentioned a couple of times in 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 this genealogy um you i not actually not mentioned you purposefully skirt around the father, your father and mm-hmm. your father's side of the family mm-hmm. um, what has your father in his presence and or absence, like hmm.
1: taught you or pushed you towards. Um, well, first of all, taught me how to be a father by not being one. Um, my son Bashir is thirteen. Uh, my wife Sybil is pregnant. She's delivering June ninth. Um, our son Jupiter.
0: Yo, congratulations! Uh, thank you. <laughs> and I love that name. I love that name. <laughs> I'm, like, like small side note. Not to make it about me, but I literally have this thing in my mind, like my goal is to become Jupiter, like when what? I think about what I want to be when I grow up, Uh-oh. I think about Jupiter, I'm like I just want to be like quiet and like large and like looming and still and a perfect <laughs> circle. I mean Jupiter's not technically quiet but but yeah, Jupiter, I always think about Jupiter that's oh, wild
1: yeah we, we chose that name um, because uh Jupiter Hammond was uh so my wife's from Long Island. Her name is Sybil. And Jupiter Hammond was, I think the second or the first published black poet, it was either he or Phyllis Wheatley. Um, But Jupiter Hammond was enslaved in Long Island and and was born and died in slavery. And I write poetry and she's from Long Island. And we went to go visit um, the plantation Well, the place that was the plantation um, where he lived and died uh on Long Island and and that was before she was even pregnant we were like well if we ever have a boy we're gonna name him Jupiter because of this place so
0: yeah that's amazing congratulations man <laughs>
1: right. um oh but yeah so my father right oh, oh yeah uh, yeah 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 um yeah he taught me how to be that um so in my later years, my father has taught me this because when I was younger, he just told me how to be confused and angry and um, searching for uh, guidance and people who are the same age as me and just as detrimental as I was as a youth. But um, and in my adulthood, he teaches he teaches me failure, like what what the product of failure looks like, what the product of a lack of like um, self determination looks like what the failure of capitalizing on extreme intelligence looks like to your detriment. Um, yeah. And he he also teaches me how not to be alone because he is and it's fucked up. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, you have you have you have crossed so many things that i want to come back to um i'm gonna reel back to (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna reel back to jupiter and and your wife sybil um and pull back even further to 2020 which was a year uh for many of us and i'm just gonna call it a year because it was many things right it was I, I feel it was the full breadth um, of the human experience of, of, you know, of highs, of lows and ins and outs um, of, of, of peaks and valleys. But for you in particular, what was the year 2020 for you? There were many things that happened outside of the pandemic and directly due to the pandemic, but also, you know, professionally and personally, some things that happened in that year. What was it like for you?
1: Um, personally, it was a year of rebirth um I moved back to Philadelphia after being in, in New York for eight years um I moved back in with my mother um who I still live with now um you know I mentioned my son Bashir uh, who used to live with me in Brooklyn I was a single parent with him for a couple of years and then he moved back with his mother so um re, like not reestablishing those seeds but like really being able to water them in a way um in proximity that I could just not do because I lived uh, you know two states away um and also, I mean, Honeysuckle was very alive and very active pre-pandemic, um, and there was, a, there was a shutdown of it because it, you know, it was a pop-up, and um, all dining, all things restaurant, all things food, kind of like, um, well, not kind of, they became less external and more internal um, because of the pandemic, we couldn't go out to eat. So um, I had to, well, I, I don't even think that I did it. It evolved on its own. Um, into something way more meaningful than I think I even imagined and it was already meaningful to begin with um, but way more meaningful now um, and so that was yeah rebirth and evolution for me um, in the midst of obviously you know tons of tons of grief uh, <clears throat> tons of grief that I actually had time to like focus on uh, because as a chef for years you know with Trayvon Martin and Samir Rice and you know I don't know don't need to go down the list right now but all of the all of those murders um, all these highly publicized murders I should say um, over the past ten years I was in kitchens a lot of the time I was at work a lot of the time I was traveling a lot of the time and so although I was affected by them I didn't have time to really engage you know um, I wasn't at any protests I wasn't doing things like that I was too busy. You know, Um, but being still, being still in a world that's supposed to be still, while we can still find time to murder Black people, (laughs) uh, was like extremely sorrowful, but also extremely interesting at the same time. Yeah, it was, it really showed like who we are, like as as a nation, you know. What our possibility is can we can we shut down our economy? <laughs> yes. Um can we actually figure out ways to feed a bunch of people all at the same time? Yes. Can we figure out how to make sure we stop spreading disease? Yes. Can we stop killing black people? No. <laughs>
0: oh my god. <laughs>
1: Did you also meet your wife in 2020? Yes. We met right before the pandemic in Charleston at an event called Charleston Wine and Food. um, And fell in love very immediately. And um, spent three months on FaceTime. um, And then we saw each other again in May. uh, Got married in August. um, And now here we are she's the most amazing person i've ever met in my life
0: and what was that meeting like like what was that meeting like when you met sybil and how did that differ from what you thought love was prior
1: to um well i mean because of what we were doing the event that we were doing was um an event with a chef named bj dennis where he was uh he, he gathered a bunch of chefs from several different um, to represent several different parts of, of the diaspora. So, uh, Sybil's Haitian. Um, so she was representing Haiti, and um, there was a chef named Binta who was West, representing West Africa. Um, <clears throat> I was representing like Black American traditions, um, especially like you know the migratory ones. Uh, chef BJ himself was representing the Low Country. Um, and uh, gosh, who am I missing? Who am I missing? No, I can't remember right now. <laughs> it's okay. It's not answering your question. The answer to your question is, um, there was already like uh, a notion of like what her value system might be, <laughs> you know, um, because, of, because of where we were. Um, and then she was the most beautiful person that I'd ever met. Um, and we just spent a lot of time together um, in that period where I, I, I like very quickly, like we kind of like existed in a vacuum more or less and very quickly I, I just came to learn who she was and I fell in love with the fact that like she's she has a very rich family you know um in terms of like their relationships um what like the, we care about the same things um <laughs> we uh she's very inspiring to me in the way that she thinks. She thinks in, in ways that are, I mean, I'm very like abstract and she's a little more practical than me, but her imagination is still like wild. She writes children's books um, and and poetry and she can just like, she can come up with a story, like a children's story on the spot. If I was like, yo, tell me a story. She would have like a whole story <laughs> from start to finish. um, And like, it's just, I, I could go on and on and on, but she, um. Yeah. So the meeting was like, was spectacular. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have language for it yet. No, that's, that's
0: amazing. And it, you know, the, that's a good sign, right? Like that's a good sign when you can't speak it because that means <laughs> it has not been encountered yet. Like it, like um, there, we have not figured out a way to translate. What that <laughs> is like, do you know what I mean? So that's amazing. And how did that differ from your previous attempts at love? Um,
1: I felt like previous attempts at love were me either like satisfying something that was missing previously in a relationship or something that um I was like feeling um, a void of like discomfort you know you know just spending spending too much time and in, in too comfortable situations or you know like I mean for example with my, my son's mother most of it was convenience because we both wanted to like be in his life and we thought we had to be together to be in his life, Um, you know, things like that. But this one was more, is more of like a universal combination of of, of just like energy transfer in a way where like it's, it's I used to think that re- like relationships were supposed to be seamless, you know? Um And the work that it requires to maintain this relationship is as if I was trying to like, hold the milky way system together (laughs) you know like playing with the stars you know and um yeah it's just god it's it's just such a hard question (laughs) we both felt like we were supposed to be together though and so we did
0: yeah i I love uh, i I love that 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 story and i and i ask because you know i think love and and learning how to love you mm-hmm. know, is a practice. It you is. know, it is something that we don't always get right. Um, that many times uh, we misunderstand what love is. Mm-hmm. We're trying to balance our concept of love, or I should say, our experience of love, with what we've been told love is. You mm-hmm. know, um, which is love within the demands of capital, right? Because all the love stories we hear about are literally like just the first five days of the relationship. Every movie is literally just like the very first five days Mm -hmm. or the first, you know, two weeks of a relationship. But, you know, the extend what does that mean to extend? What does that mean to to pour into the other over Mm -hmm. time, um, which you which you spoke about as, you know, an energy share or an energy transformation. Um, And I think (laughs) it's really incredible that you and your wife, I should say just really beautiful um, how you and your wife actually have this shared um, art practice that, you know, undulates between the work that she's doing um, and the work that you're doing. And also that you both have these really, cool projects that you're working on yours is honeysuckle hers is earthseed which mm-hmm. uh you know shout out to Octavia Butler uh, Octavia Butler um but could you tell us a little bit about honeysuckle provisions um that that as it was um iterated before the pandemic and then what you're working on in Philly
1: Yeah, um, so honeysuckle before was it was was just called a honeysuckle pop up. The name honeysuckle came from or comes from the um, the the bush that grew along the side of my house where I grew up in in Philly. Uh, It was a honeysuckle plant, and um, my my like most recent memory of innocence comes like just before adolescence, and my mom and my brothers and I like going out on Saturdays, and before we would leave, we would taste honeysuckle, you know, because it was like right there. So um, <clears throat> that was that is also my most recent memory of like innocent create creativity really um, before like I entered the world in a way of, where I was like navigating the world on my own terms, um, and so that's why I named it that. <clears throat> and the very first honeysuckle like thing was Kool Aid uh, that I made from still make it's been at every single dinner uh, out of dried strawberry sugar and citric acid and like that's it. Um, And that came about because as a chef, you know, there's all these different representations of what chefs are in several different shows, but like the most notable one for like the best chefs in the world is called Chef's Table, where in the beginning, there's always this very heavy handed nostalgic moment of a chef going back home or being at home, talking about or with a grandmother or, you know, someone maternal usually, um, or in a field picking flowers and shit like that. And like, I, I grew up in Philly. And right next door to my house was an empty overweeded lot. And across the street from my house was a empty concrete lot full of broken cars and old concrete from the building that was demolished there years before we got there. So there really wasn't me like frolicking in anything other than frolicking in our own kitchen, <laughs> you know. Um, so the thing that was that that was like really a staple um at dinner or even outside of dinner was like, we just always had Kool-Aid. And I'm not saying that Kool-Aid is a black thing. I'm saying that the world made Kool-Aid a new watermelon. And so now it is a black thing. So me using that to enter people into my world is, um, <clears throat> is my way of creating that nostalgic moment um, that chef table, Chef's Table offers. Um, and I, I get to offer it uh, to my guests to enter them into my space. And so, you know, um, after that, it's a multi-course dining experience where I combine art either for myself, um, or in collaboration, or just featuring friends, um, artists. Most, I mean, most often, I've worked with a friend of mine named uh, Felicita Maynard, who um, is a uh, wet plate photographer, and we've collaborated on a lot of different, um, a lot of different experiences through Honeysuckle, and they're they're just extremely talented. Um, and I always write a zine to accompany the menu. So the menu titles um, are also often, most often, the same name as a, as the poem that's in the zine or shares the name of a drawing that's in the zine. So that the guests, when they're experiencing the meal, um, they're able to like refer back to the zine. Um, and I used to come out and explain things to people, um, not to people like I would step out in between these courses and say you're this is blah 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 um and give insight into what the what the courses were but I'm I mainly wanted people to like lean on the ephemerality of the zine you know because I didn't want to I don't like um intruding on imagination you know um because I can give you all the facts in the world you know but I'm not a professor, and I don't. I don't intend to profess. I can just tell you my perception of life uh, as as I as I can see it. You know, and so that that, that approach um, leaves room for me to make mistakes, but also leaves room for my own imagination to dance with another's, so that we can all have a bigger picture or a little more insight into the fullness of what a fact is. You know, if I told you that Tulsa happened, yeah, we all know that Tulsa happened. But if I told you if I told you that there was a little girl in Tulsa who ate a lollipop, you know, whether she was real or not, there was candy and there were little girls and there was a Tulsa. And so what you really see is a snapshot of a life and a fact of history uh, or a snapshot and uh, you know something that's happening right now that people otherwise are you know getting the, the facts of through the news or something like that. And I've always wanted to avoid facts. I've, I've always wanted to provide just a little bit of a lie, um, because lies are the construction of self, especially for Black people, you know. Um, and I, I always think that that's like my best. The, the best value that I can add to my experience, you know? Lies
0: are the construction of self, especially for Black people. Could you, could you double tap on that? Give me a little bit more.
1: Um, so this, this idea I first understood from Kevin Young in that book, The Grey Album, um, and that it, it, it especially rang true um, in, the, in the world of chefs. You know, with, with uh, domesticity being such a, a founding block of Black existence in this country due to slavery, um, <clears throat> we're often painted a picture or a narrative as fact that is not truly how the Black heart felt about their existence. Um, so what slave narratives used to do was counteract the narratives that were being told about a Black existence as a slave, and, and further embellish it with their own idea of who they should be, in personhood. And so, oftentimes, slave narratives just a lot of them were just untrue or exaggerations of truth. And then, when you get into storying or folktales, tales, um, when you look at like the work of Zora Neale Hurston and Mules and Men, you know she goes down and she she listens and records the folk tales and stories of, of folks of Florida, you know. Um, if you look at a story like like Beloved, you know, um, clearly that's an exaggeration, a supernatural exaggeration of a black life that could be like. When you look at it on the surface, like, is this a true story or not a true story? You know, um, if you if you listen to uh, like Black Saint and the Lady Center, you know, by Charles Mingus, it's a black ballet. Black ballets just didn't even exist. And he used a lot of Spanish, a lot of Spanish guitar, um, and folk music to create this abstract ballet that is almost like impossible to be performed and exists outside of the constructs of what like uh, 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 impressionist dance might be. Because ballet is like a, a birth out of impressionism in France. To call something a ballet gives people an idea of what it might look like and. He just ter- totally turns it on his head. So he had to create a new truth to even make that, you know? So um, why couldn't we do the same thing with food? Why why aren't we doing the same thing with food, you know? Um, the truth is, we are. Uh, it's just not us that are doing it. For a long time, it was white folks that were doing it, you know? Like the way that food exists now, or the way that, like, like French food, for example, became um, the benchmark for what fineness was in food. But all they really did was codify their shit, you know, um, and, and said that that was the mark. And then they put a mark there in front of a group of people and they said, yo, go over there. If you go over there, you're, you're a chef, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, you know, you gotta do a lot of reading in between the lines to understand black truths um and those in between those lines are often or in between those yeah those lies sorry in between those lines are often the lies that we told to tell the truth about ourselves so um that's <laughs> that's where that comes from
0: yeah that that's like i i love i love this um you know this this turning on the head of not only truth, not only lie or what defines lie or truth, but then also just turning experience itself on its head, particularly as it pertains to like cuisine or food or food stuff um, and so with that, I want to talk like specifically about the experience that you create at the table, and I'm going to do my best to try to paint a small picture of what I I experienced at uh, at Stone Barn um, with you, courtesy of DJ April Hunt. Thank you, April. Um, But, you know, walking into the space, you know, I'm confronted with an art installation of, you know, music, record, record players, you know, photographs from your collaborator, friend, um, and then, you know, your own artwork as well, and then guide it through, to these uh to this table where there is maybe eight eight courses
1: yeah it was eight courses
0: like eight courses that okay i'm gonna i'm just gonna tell you i'm not a foodie omar i'm so sorry <laughs> I, I really just eat as a function like i'm i could just make black beans and rice and i'll be just fine <laughs> like really and, and be completely satisfied um But going into this experience, it was something like I had never experienced before. I mean, it was so, so rich and deep, just not even in the flavor profile. Yes, it was mirrored in the flavor profiles, but just in the thought and the intentionality. And also, like... The drama, right? Like the drama, the storytelling, the narrative. Um, you know, it opened with your with your signature, you know, quote unquote Kool Aid. But like the salad course, which I believe is called Black Lung. Is that correct? Um, which is about a young black woman being killed, shot in so, the back of. I'm no, sorry, that's a different
1: dish. That's a different dish. Oh wait, what's the? Di- yeah. Well, oh, the, the first, yeah, the first course is uh, Black Lung, a terrarium for black breasts
0: um and it's oh a- okay wait so the salad is black lung mm-hmm. oh'm I'm, I'm conflating the poem with the dish yeah,
1: yeah oh yeah. okay there's okay a poem, there's a poem called black lung that is literally just um inhale period exhale period um written out uh <clears throat> each word written out as breaths per minute um like in that amount of times so i think it was like 41 something like that um that was the poem for black lung uh, oh okay
0: I, so I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself because I do want to talk about black lung. I do want to talk about this salad <laughs> because it was so incredible. Um so do you want to describe the salad and the plating or do you want me to?
1: No, I actually want to hear you describe it. Oh shit. <laughs> okay, here we go. So
0: I'm sitting at the table and you know the waiter comes with a plate that is A ceramic plate that is made from it so so these plates are unique guys like it's it's not like your normal plate it's a plate that is rectangular um and it is made from the impressions of the sidewalk in front of your home in philly Mm -hmm. and so on this rectangular plate um are greens mixed greens, you know, on one side. And then on top of the salad is a glass dome. So they are bringing this almost spaceship looking th- like thing to your <laughs> table. Um, you know, and they sit it down, they remove the glass dome, and you eat the salad, which is delicious and delightful. And at the bottom of the salad are two chicken bones like crossing each other dried completely stripped and what i i was i was it's interesting that it's called black lung um because i was actually speechless like yeah. i was actually speechless in the experience and speechless in the way in which it's difficult for you to even speak about like what it felt like when you met your wife, where I was like, there were so many layers that collapsed on itself and at one time. Right. It was, that's what it was. It was like a, it was a collapsing of, of space time. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So the time for me to like eat this salad, this like airy, light, fresh um dish, and then to be confronted with like, you know, these bones with, 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 with death. And, and it really was because the salad, because it was light, because it was all these things, right. It was, it was air, right. Mm-hmm. It was air. Um, and then underneath, like, like reality's Cracker jack box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you see, that's, this is why I wanted you to describe it. Cause <laughs> One thing I always tell people is that I'll, I'll never be able to experience a honeysuckle dinner ever Mm. because I have to create it. Mm. So I always love to hear people describe it.
0: Yeah. And, and I appreciate it. I appreciate that so much. And even when you mentioned earlier about leaving space for one's imagination to come into the space, I think that's, you know, it's genius, man. I mean, it's genius. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to talk about, you know, more about how you prepare something like this, but I'm also just going to take this moment to give you some like extra flowers in, in just taking, taking something ordinary, something that we must do to survive, right? Which is to eat um, and taking, what is considered fine dining and turning that on its head too. So taking it out of these, you know, kind of stuffy spaces and infusing it with your own black imagination, right. To create this new thing, this third thing, this jazz food, this blues food. Um, and even in that, with all of the energy that you put into that, you, generously left room for us in the process (laughs) and what that does is make every dish different every time right because there is that and it speaks a lot to you know what the institute of black imagination or even this podcast is about which is this understanding that design is predictive meaning that the designer is predicting how the end user is going to interact with this design. rarely is there some kind of modular or adaptive function on the user and for it to um be adapted to their own needs and use and so and the world that we live in has been designed and been designed by a very specific group of people, and we all, regardless of colour, find ourselves on the other side of that. Of that function, of that design, of that equation, um, and so what you've done, just in cuisine, and, and not even speaking about the myriad of ways in which you're using your imagination to approach the subject, right via poetry, via like actual like ceramic dishes that like that you've created in collaboration with your collective, um, but you you do actually leave room for the participant in the mm-hmm. equation, which for me is the black imagination. That like, that is yeah. what, and that is what is needed. Like this is the thinking that we all have to approach um, our, you know, whichever practice, right, we've been, that, that, that moves us, um, like that, that's the charge, is mm-hmm. to bring the lived experience of the individual to the thing. Instead of just predicting it, instead of just demanding, instead of just, you know, patriarchally and condescendingly assigning the use. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to stop talking because I can talk about this for forever. But (laughs) I just really appreciate that experience. And I mean, and guys, that's just the salad we haven't (laughs) (laughs) eaten. Well, thank you. We <laughs> so can all go home now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm going no. to stop, stop at the salad. Um, but, bro, no. like, I just, yeah. So so when you are thinking about creating creating a honeysuckle experience, you know, what, what are you bringing to the table outside of, or I should say, how do you construct a honeysuckle experience? Boom. I'll leave it at
1: that. Um... I mean, there's there's really no real process. Um, I'll I'll be reading a lot. So the thing is, I can't create if I don't have space to read. So what happens is, like, I find myself reading, or I find myself uh, studying something very particular, or listening to music. Like maybe months ahead, maybe a year ahead. Like because things come back to me sometimes, and um, I'll be like, oh, that's a dish, whatever that thing is. I mean. I know this is not really explaining anything, but that's literally how, how it happened. I mean, just just the other day, I um, I was thinking about a meal that I'm planning on doing in in, um, in Philly in May. Um, and I already had one dish in mind that uh, it's actually the same title as a song by um, uh, Lightning John Hopkins called Green Onions. And so I, I thought of a dish that centered green onions and adding chlorophyll to it and like it'll be like like a really bright green beautiful dish but then um I started thinking about other other dishes and like was kind of having like a a roadblock and came back to a dish that I did called um smoked turkey next in 1980s Philadelphia which is a a charred well it looks like a very charred blackened burnt piece of turkey um that's actually just coated in an activated charcoal and has been braised for hours and hours so you you look at this thing, it looks dry to the bone and burnt and discarded um, and you, you cut into it and it's a really succulent like short rib like textured piece of meat. Um, <clears throat> but it's an acknowledgement of what happened to those who were bombed um, in Philadelphia in 1985. Uh, the MOVE organization was bombed by the city of Philadelphia. So uh, I came back to that dish and I just started to think about color. And um, I was like, well, what if I made, what if I created an entire meal centered around just distinct color. And um, and that grew into, well, what is color theory? And ultimately I came back, came down to uh, the Kente cloth and, and uh, um, imagining color theory in the gaze of blackness that's reaching back for something that's evaporated. And that's what the Kente, Kente cloth represents to me um, for black America, because I mean, at the same time that I, became aware of the Kente cloth was also the same time that I became aware that Swahili was a language that we should be speaking. um, And those cultures are not the same culture. And so black Americans are constantly trying to piece together a puzzle of things that don't necessarily make sense on that end, but we've reconciled enough for ourselves to form identity. And so I'm going through this with you Mm. to kind of tell you how I come to a place because I can't really come to a place. And so I started researching um, more on Kente and that it comes from Ghana and particularly like the Ashanti tribe and who makes it and how it's made and all this stuff and what the, the pertinent colors are and all the colors have meaning. And so now I have a six course menu um, where each dish is only one color um, with several different ingredients that speak to the virtues of the colors assigned to Kente. Um, and that's what I'll be doing in May.
0: Incredible, wait, wh- when, where, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> are sold out yet? <laughs> Uh, it hasn't even gone for sale yet. Uh, that's we're we're still in conversation, but um, yeah, it's it's happening around May twentieth, twenty third, around that time.
0: Okay, I I love you know. Th- thank you for that. Like that that actually kind of answers my question in a way. But I'm also thinking about just the ways in which you actually bring the black body to the table and mm-hmm. the uh and 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 the and the corporeality of the black body so not in you know in in ways abstract and in ways um um oh my god what's this word when you could uh when you could touch something when you could feel something i'm i'm drawing a blank in a in a way in ways oh, that are fine. um Palpable? Yeah, palpable. Let's say palpable, incarnate. Um, You know, and also thinking about like this idea of consumption, right? Consumption and consumption of the Black body, um, which I find really interesting. But what about food? Like what is it particularly about food that you love as a medium of creativity?
1: Um, It's impermanence uh, as a, as a physical thing, it's impermanent, but when we ingest it, uh, there's energy that stays with us, um, around, like who prepared it, where the food comes from, and then ultimately where the person's going afterward, you know, uh, people always take away something from a meal, whether it's, whether it's health or sickness, um, whether, it, whether it's, uh, a memory, whether they want to forget it whether the, 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 people always remember a bad meal, but not everyone remembers a good meal. Um, and very very rarely do people experience a great meal. Um, <clears throat> but what, what are the things that make a great meal? It's almost never the food. So the food at Honeysuckle is quite frankly, the least important part of the experience. Um, of course, everything tastes delicious. That's what I've been trained to do. Of course, everything's sourced um from like responsible places and things and like it's not enough for me to say that it's local and organic um because those those words are arbitrary when you look at like how we consume food and who actually is able to enjoy things from that moral vector you know like it's just not even like it it just doesn't fucking matter um at the end of the day for the majority of the world so i'm going to do those things because those are just best practices but um in terms of creating an experience that one won't forget, creating an experience that I think is building upon legend, um, creating an experience that um, is truly um, signaling and messaging um, existence is like something that almost no one does um, and I feel compelled to do. It's not, at this point, I don't think it ever started out as I'm going to do this thing and make people feel this way. Um, It started out as I have to do this thing so I can feel this way, (laughs) you know? Um, And that's grown into something that people can share and you don't have to be black to understand um, acknowledgement. You don't have to be black to know what it feels like to be looked at in the eyes and recognized, you know? So um, that's, that's what I try to do with food.
0: And Speaking of being looked at in the eye and recognized, um, also back back to the meal, like there were moments and there like, you know, when you can always, when you can, when you can watch a t- television show and know that the writers in the room were black, mm-hmm. you know, those like small inside jokes. There were also those in, um, in the meal where I was like, it was like very specific. Like there was one dish I can't remember. And I was like, oh, okay. you know it's like it's like it's it's that one signal where you know like only those who know will know um so thank you for that but like I was I was reading the article that you wrote in Esquire about your experience in 2020 and these things being shut down and having Mm -hmm. to go back to live with your mother in in Philly um and also being forced to shop at like a local I'm just going to call it in the New York vernacular, bodega. Um,
1: Happened again, sorry.
0: Oh, no, no, it's okay. In In a local bodega, you know, in thinking about food and access to food, like what do you feel that we as a Black community maybe don't understand about food or maybe don't always think about food or consider or maybe just should know or should be conscious of as we think about food?
1: um i mean i think well you asked me a, a broad question so the the broad answer um is that i think that most black people regardless of privilege or not privilege or school education or not education um don't understand how intentional uh our our country our political system our government and our neighbors um whiteness <laughs> have uh meticulously separated us from our food and nutrition and land. How thorough and successful that is or has become to the point where before you can even get to the conversation around whether or not poor black people care about good food, um, you have to answer the question, why do when anyone, why does when anyone reaches a certain economic status in this country, get to buy into access to better food. It's not a Black issue. you know. Um, the, un- the understanding of that separation is a Black issue because that doesn't happen to everyone. Other ethnicities, cultures, races in this country, if they find themselves impoverished, they're most likely in a neighborhood within proximity to poor Black people Um, And it just so happens, just so happens that those people have a lack of access to fresh food. You and I don't have that problem, I'm assuming, you know, Um, but it's because we've reached a certain, a particular phase um, in our lives or space in our lives where we can afford to buy into that club. Um, Like No shade, but like, it's, it's just, it's kind of a a bad question to ask what do black people need to understand or don't understand because it's it's like on the verge of a victim blame, you know? Um, what, does, what, what does our country owe us to make us understand why we aren't eating well? They owe us education, um, they owe us land rights, Uh, They, they owe us urban farming, Um, they owe us an an economy that is able to subsidize the cost of growing food so that it can exist in a way where it's affordable to people. Um, These aren't black issues, these are systemic ones.
0: Thank you, and thank you for, um, for, for calling out um, some of the. Sloppy, I'll say sloppy wording um, in that question. Um, But the answer was um, really kind of zeroed in on what I was uh, going after, and definitely not like a victim blame. But thank you for that. No, Um, no, I mean
1: (laughs) that's not your fault. Yeah, you know we're not we're taught in a way where it's like it's it's a pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality what can what can a nigga with one one hand and one foot do to get himself closer to food closer to good food not a damn thing you know like literally not a damn thing what can a five-year-old child who's waiting for their mom to come home you know with mcdonald's because that's all she can actually muster like it's not even that that's all she can afford that's all she has the energy to produce what can that five-year-old do nothing literally nothing so you know um And again these aren't these are black issues um but they're largely economic ones as a strategy to underpin blackness and Mm -hmm. thriving
0: Mm -hmm. um thank you i i want to take a a quick pivot um just like a spiritual practice like Mm -hmm. do you have a spiritual practice and if so like you know, what is it like? What is the lens through which you view the world and reality?
1: Um, I was raised Muslim. Well, when I was born, we were um, Baptist, so I still remember the church. Um, but then my mom converted to Islam in the in the, like the late 80s, and I was raised Muslim um, at first um, under the Nation of Islam, and then um, exiting the Nation of Islam into Sunni practice. Um, today, I don't uh, practice religion. I actually just have a hard time with um, how easily it's manipulated but I do celebrate um, that it's great for people um, to create systems around which they can govern their, govern their lives successfully and righteously. Um, mostly I'm thankful to a supreme or you know higher being um, that I cannot name and also I don't um, believe that I should be able to name. Um, which opens me up to a universal acceptance of um, benevolent joy, uh, for most parts, and I, I can see that represented in nature. I can see that represented um, in my children and my wife. I can see that represented in hugs. Um, I can see that represented in you know the the fractal uh, <laughs> fractal uh, look of a cut piece of food you know and vegetables <laughs> um i can represent it when things are like sunlight is prisoned through the window you know um i'm i'm in constant gratitude uh because you know if you live long enough you, you also know you don't have to be here and that can happen before you even get here so um, i'm just thankful that's it and i obviously like Our ancestors and the work that's laid before us because that's what you do (laughs) that's i mean that's just what's been instilled in me so um
0: yeah yeah thank you thank you for that i before before we wrap i just have a couple of questions i want to respect your time um you know when we were speaking prior to the podcast just about our own experiences In the space of creativity, like I want to pull the curtain behind, um, uh, you know, pull the curtain away a little bit, um, but also go specifically to uh, this article that you wrote in Esquire, which I found to be um, so forthright and uh, from a place of, you know, pure honesty and vulnerability Mm -hmm. when you spoke about, you know, you know, not having paid your taxes in three years and, you know, because of the pandemic, like like I said, you know, having to go back home and move with Philly, even though you were just like covered in the times, and you know what what was the internal dialogue that it took you to push through that experience? Because I find in not only my own lived experience, um, but encountering other. Um, not even just black, black creatives, but you know, black professionals. That although there is there is the talent and there is the drive and the will to uh, achieve, there are all of these uh, peripheral things mm-hmm. that that at any given moment can bring that all crashing down. Right. So that space of being. Um, you know, maybe perhaps uplifted in the public, but also, you know, internally feeling like you are, you know, in your zone, that that's a very liminal space. That that's very precarious. Um, mm-hmm. What is that experience like for you? And what is that internal dialogue that you use to push past it to come out, you know, on the other side?
1: Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't really believe in the atmosphere in which I exist um, strong enough to like step completely into it um, because so for example October 2019 um, I was at Questlove's birthday party uh, it, it, in New York um, on whatever floor overlooking like the river and it was an amazing time it was really great and then when I went back home I was like how the fuck am I going to pay my rent tomorrow shit <laughs> <laughs> I didn't spend money to get there. I was just living like like I I could barely afford to pay my rent, you know? Um, And, you know, I was living in New York for eight years and things are going great, but every time I went back home to Philly, reality. Philly Philly was my uncomfortable jacket, you know, um, that I knew I couldn't get rid of because I wore it for a while. And I thought I outgrew it, but I just couldn't get rid of it. So when I went back, you know, every time I went back home, it'd be uncomfortable again. I moved to New York and put my nice jacket on. So um, I think always keeping that jacket helps me. Oh, now I'm back home and I wear that jacket all the time, and it's more comfortable than it ever was. But what's what's really great is that I, I know I can always buy this nice jacket from new york if i wanted to again um and i can keep them both in the same closet and i can bring both those worlds together um to show to show people a level of comfort that maybe you know other people are trying to work through um, i'm i'm definitely my most comfortable self than i've ever been um, and i feel like that's only going to get more comfortable because that's what i want um, and so now I feel like a tailor of my own jacket. You know,
0: amazing, a poet to the end. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Could would you would you mind reading, uh, um, your poem untitled? Yeah. Before right. we go, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, um, let me let me preface it with, um, I, I, I it's called untitled because I just couldn't think of an uh, of something to name such an atrocity, but. Um, Untitled, Latasha Harlins was shot in the back of the head by the owner of a Korean grocery store in LA in 1991. Mr. Kim used to give me food because I was hungry. I would walk in his store holding poverty as my currency. Old Mr. King was an old soft-spoken black man and Mr. Kim's partner in the business until Mr. Kim fired him. Mr. King would pull the bread for me and maybe some eggs. He would make sure that I opened the carton to check every egg as if I had the money to make sure they wasn't broke too.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, brother. My, my last question, Um, you know, before I ask it, I just want to, again, just acknowledge you for the tireless work that you have done, not only on yourself, but, you know, in the kitchen and in your community, both, you know, in, in the recent, at least my recent past, but also like the future, like the future of honeysuckle provisions. Um, And then also taking the black experience um, and really putting it on a table, not for display and not for even just consumption, but for interaction to take us on a journey um, to a place that maybe we aren't even prepared for, but again, like leaving space for us to bring ourselves to the table and not even like just a seat at the table, but like real participation Mm -hmm. at the table. So I really thank you and appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. Um, where can people find and connect with you?
1: Um, honeysuckle underscore projects on Instagram, um, Coltrane215 on Instagram, Um, And then there's honeysucklephl.com.
0: Amazing. And my last question. So what is the world that you imagine for the future?
1: Whew, man. Um, That changes all the time. Um, But I was really inspired by listening to a man named Charles Blow on a podcast called Freakonomics for his book called The Devil We Know where he describes black folks moving back to the South and creating a black America. Um, I'm not entirely sold on that vision, um, but I think that uh, the most beautiful place that I can think of is America, which is my home that becomes a black America, not because black people have pushed themselves into a space where there's only Black people, but America has acknowledged what they've done to Black Americans, what they've done to Indigenous Americans to unify this country around a true healing. And whatever that's gonna look like on the end, on the opposite side is what I wanna see.
0: Man, I wanna see it too. (laughs) um omar again thank you so much for your time i really 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 appreciate it and brother have a beautiful beautiful rest of your day and again congratulations on jupiter who will be coming <laughs> very 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 soon really appreciate this man thank you sir. all right appreciate have a great one All right, all ciao.
1: right. Peace.
0: thank you all so much for tuning in today I love Omar's conviction and commitment to his work, and this dialogue really speaks to the power of conversation and confrontation rooted in love. What resonated with you? Let us know over on Instagram and Twitter, at Black Imagination, and just share with one or two friends you think would really love this content. Why ask for a seat at the table when you can just build your own? You already have the wood. Stay curious and
1: keep dreaming.